So Revelation 1, 1 to 3, instead of being fearful of the book of Revelation or intimidated by it or shying away from it or not reading it because you just think you'll never understand it and all those smart Christian people, they still disagree with each other and they've read it 10,000 times and they know how to read the original language. Instead of being intimidated or fearful of the book of Revelation, do you see what verse 3 said? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Do you want to be blessed by God? God said, read Revelation. The opening chapters, chapters 1 to 6, show us that there will be many challenges to the growth of the kingdom and the success of the church in carrying out the great commission of Christ. Yet, those same chapters, chapters 1 to 6, show us that Jesus Christ, who is the exalted, reigning, enthroned Lord of heaven, is sovereign over all the affairs of all the people who ever live anywhere and every nation that ever rises or falls. Your king is in control of time. So the good news from Revelation 1-6 to that's only good for Christians, not good for non-Christians. The good news for Christians is that it was written for you to know and to believe that when Christ rose from the dead, the glorious end of everything irreversibly began. It's theological terms, inaugurated eschatology. The end has already begun. The inbreaking of the kingdom of Christ into this present evil age has already pierced the darkness. Jesus is reigning. One day, it won't just be pierces into the darkness, it will be a ripping of the veil and everybody will see. Christ is king. I think the key verse of the book of Revelation is verse 5 of chapter 1, which Nathan Kaiser quoted last Sunday in our growth session as a verse that the Lord has used to sustain him over the previous year. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Verse 5 and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's your Redeemer. Verse 6 says, He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is what Revelation is all about. Well, with that in mind, I said there's four series of sevens. There are seven churches. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. First, the churches. This is chapters 2 and 3. We know from these chapters that the book of Revelation was written to local churches just like this one. They were persecuted, suffering, struggling Christians in seven cities, in Roman provinces scattered throughout Asia. Dr. Easley said, quote, they were all under attack by the Babylon of their day, Rome. Under Domitian, 
who was the emperor of Rome and wanted to be worshipped as God, many Christians, your brothers, your sisters, were made martyrs. He slaughtered many of them. Rome was a horrible threat. It appeared in the day of our brothers and sisters under Domitian's reign in Rome that Christianity might be wiped out and wiped off the face of the planet, snuffed out, no more churches anywhere. Now I want to ask you a question. If you were going to sit down tonight and write a letter to churches like that, you know, six degrees of separation, the, the, the theory that you are six degrees or less separated from every person on planet Earth, the person in the far-off jungles of foreign third-world countries, you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows them. In the first century, you would have one or two degrees of separation from another Christian who was martyred for their faith. What would you write to those people? What would you write to those churches? under such horrific persecution. When your brothers and sisters were being slaughtered for their faith, better yet, what does Jesus write to them? Skim through chapters 2 and 3, and I'm going to tell you what He says to them. To the church at Ephesus. A summary is, love one another greatly. I just want to ask you a question. Do other Christians find it easier to live more faithfully for Jesus because of you? Do you help them love Him more by your love for them? That's His message to the church at Ephesus. To Smyrna, be steadfast in persecution. To Pergamum, hold on to the truth. To Thyatira, be morally pure. People are dying for their faith and you're worried about our sexual integrity? Yes. To Sardis, return to spiritual life. To Philadelphia, be sure of the kingdom of Christ. To Laodicea, repent of your self-sufficiency. That's what Jesus would say to suffering churches. No matter how severe the persecution comes. Jesus never says, anywhere in the New Testament, Revelation included, why don't you just take a little break? I'm so sorry that it all turned out this way for you. I didn't mean for it to be so hard. What we see in chapters 2 and 3 is that Jesus, the risen and reigning Lord of the universe, I love this phrase, oh how precious it is. Jesus, the risen and reigning Lord of the universe, walks among His churches. I believe Hebrews chapter 2, other passages in the New Testament give us firm reason to believe that when churches gather in His name, that's in His character, according to His promises, in light of the Gospel. When we gather in the name of Jesus, that's why we are here right now. The New Testament makes clear that Jesus is specially present with us in a way that He's not. Yes, He's with us always. But in a way that He's not when we're on our own. And these gathered congregations are places where Jesus walks. He is present with His his churches in a special way in the church age. No individual Christian can sustain life unto God on his or her own. Jesus didn't write these letters to Betty or Bob or Sue or Fred. 
He wrote them to churches, which says to us, we can't have any of the blessings that are spoken of in any of the letters to any of the churches in any of the New Testament, including Revelation, unless our life is grafted into one of these kinds of churches. It's focused on Christ. Jesus made a covenant in His blood to sustain His church. We just sang it. The church shall never perish. Maybe this local individual one will. None of the churches of the New Testament, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, any of the others are still around. This church may dissolve sooner than we expect. But the church, Christ's bride, will be sustained by Him until He returns. So, that's his message to the seven churches. But I want you to notice one more thing about them before we go to the seven seals. Five of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 and 3 are told to repent of specific sins. Now, they're suffering and struggling and they're being persecuted and some are martyred. And Jesus is still worried about holiness, repentance, turning away from sin... Yes, although Christians are promised ultimate victory in Jesus, we must continue to fight against all Christ-belittling sin and behavior until He returns. I'm still gripped to this day by a question Pastor Nathan asked way back in the days of Grace Church meeting at Bridges, for any of you who have been around that long, downtown Memphis. He preached one sermon on the seven churches. And seeing that Jesus told five of them to repent, Nathan asked us, how many members in any one of those local churches did it take for Jesus to show up and say, I have this against you? And Nathan's answer is my prayer for us. It was even this morning. Nathan's answer was, let us each walk in fellowship with Jesus so that we never find out. Is it two or seven? I mean, this room has, I'm bad at guessing, but I'm going to say about 175 people in it. Is it 12? Is it 35? Is it one plus on the majority side? For Jesus to show up and say, I have this against you. The answer is, let us not find out by walking in faithful fellowship with our king so the seven churches leads to the seven seals trumpets and bowls the seals are in chapter 6 through chapter 8 verse 5 in john's vision the seven seals were on the outside of the judgment scroll we know that from chapter 5 verse 7 the seals had to be broken for the scroll to be opened And John was weeping because no man was found worthy to open the seals, uh, to break the seals and to open the scroll. But in chapter 5, verse 5, let your eyes fall there, one of the elders said to John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Verse 6, and I saw between the throne with four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb and each one holding a harp 
with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. My understanding is that the breaking of the seven seals, chapter 6, applies to the up until now 2,000 year history of the church. Rather than, one of the views I summarized earlier, specific events preceding Christ's return. So for example, if you have read the LaHaye and Jenkins Left Behind series, they're, they're trying to be faithful to what they understand the text to say. I'm saying I don't think that's exactly what the seals are representing. I think Dr. Easley's correct in his understanding that the four horsemen shown in those chapters, quote, have ridden throughout the centuries since Revelation was composed down to this very day, conquest, war, famine, death, chapter 6, 1 to 8. I think we're still living in the time where these seals are being revealed. God's call upon His church in every age is therefore to continue to fight against the forces of evil that war against Christ and His church. The fifth seal, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, reveals that until Christ returns, many will be made martyrs for their allegiance to Jesus. From the first martyr, Stephen, in Acts 7, until the last, whoever that is, whenever that is, wherever that is, appointed by God. God's people are yet, even yet, to be faithful to Christ unto death. Martyrs. I mean people killed for their faith in Jesus. You may know that today marks the 67th anniversary of the slaughter of the Ecuador Five. 67 years ago, January the 8th, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian, those five men, they were husbands, fathers, brothers, sons. They were speared to death by the unreached Ecuadorian tribe that they were seeking to engage so that they might evangelize them. And I believe Revelation 6, 9-12 says God knows that there are more to be made even in the future. But our struggle, Paul wrote in Ephesians, is not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. In His sovereign wisdom, God has determined that a certain number of saints must die for their faith. He specified in His own eternal counsels how many that will be. And I draw attention to that just to say again, we're not playing church here. We're here to raise the banner week after week, passage after passage, that Christ is raised from the dead. He's the Lord of the universe. And since New Testament times, we also affirm to live is Christ, to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 If you let your eyes fall on Revelation 6, verse 9, you'll see for yourself that when the Lamb breaks the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will You refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? You see what they're saying, right? 
We died for our faith. When are you going to make this right? Verse 11, there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until, until, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. God has a number. Is this the Christianity you're signing up for? Is yours just first world problem Christianity? Convenient Christianity? Fit Jesus into the margins whenever you might be able to so long as it's convenient to you? Do you have a useful Jesus? Uh, Vending machine Jesus, just push the right number, get the right prize? Or do you have a, some of us are going to die for this. And He's worthy. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Let your eyes fall in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. The Holy Spirit knows that when the heat gets turned up in the crucible of the Christian experience, even those who do truly belong to Christ are going to be tempted to doubt, despair, to defect, to wonder if God's going to keep His promises. Thus, the Holy Spirit is so intentional about letting us know the conclusion of the matter on the front end before the breaking of the seventh seal. Revelation 7-9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, They cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Do you see what John was permitted to see and write? Chapter 6, some more of you need to die for your faith. That's why Jesus hadn't come back yet. Chapter 7, but know for sure there's not anything Satan or evil men, empires or regimes can do to stop the progress of the gospel to every corner of the world. Chapter 7, Jesus is going to get a bride from everywhere. All peoples, all tongues, all nations will all be, quote, before the throne, before the Lamb. Question. Where does the multitude of Jesus worshipers come from? Who are they? Chapter 7, verse 13. One of the elders said, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? Answer, verse 14. I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is worthy. The seven seals leads then in chapter 8, verse 6 to the seven trumpets. It goes all the way to chapter 11, verse 19. I believe the trumpets and the bowls both represent satanic rage against God and His people. My view is that the trumpets are primarily punitive. They are God's judgment on the wicked. Will some people see His judgment, repent, and believe? Yes. But the purpose of them is not primarily that. Rather, I believe that it's primarily final judgment, not remedial judgment. I take the trumpets and the bowls to be predominantly extra 
validation of God's just judgment upon the wicked. The bowls, I think, are just further detail of what the trumpets represent. G.K. Bill explains this view. Quote, the trumpet, the trumpet judgments are sometimes understood and as intended primarily to warn unbelievers that they will suffer the final judgment if they do not repent. The key, Bill writes, to understanding the nature of these as warning judgments is the formative Old Testament background. The first five trumpets are patterned almost identically after the five plagues, five of the plagues that were inflicted upon the Egyptians immediately preceding Israel's exodus. If you go through the trumpets, you would see in chapter 8, verse 7, that it has to do with hail and fire. But if you go back to Exodus 9, you would see one of the plagues was hail and fire. The second and third trumpet, chapter 8, verses 8 through 11, a third of all that's in the sea died. If you go back to Exodus chapter 7, verse 20 to 25, in one of the plagues on Egypt, the Nile was turned to blood. In the fourth trumpet, chapter 8, verse 12, the sun and the moon are darkened. Well, if you go back to Exodus 10, 21 to 23, darkness fell over the land of Egypt for three days. And in the fifth trumpet, Revelation 9, 1 through 11, we see the comparison to Exodus 10, 12 to 15. So a question I think should be asked. What was God doing in the Exodus when the plagues came on Egypt? Bill put it soberly. I'm going to quote him because he's thought about it more deeply than me. I agree with this wholeheartedly. God's overall intention in the plagues was to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not release Israel. Exodus 4.21 and to give himself the opportunity to perform his plagues, that's God perform his plagues, all the signs, against Egypt. Exodus 7.3, Exodus 10.1-2. These signs, Bill writes, were not intended to coerce Pharaoh into releasing Israel, but functioned primarily to demonstrate Yahweh's incomparable omnipotence, his almightiness to the Egyptians, to show the most powerful nation on earth They're no match for God. I think that's what's happening with the trumpets and the bowls. Bill went on, consequently, while the Exodus plagues may be conceived as warnings, they are not ultimately meant to cause Pharaoh and the majority of Egyptians to repent, but to demonstrate that they are being judged because of their hardness of heart and to demonstrate Yahweh's incomparability and glory. I think that is true of the Exodus, and I don't know that anybody disagrees with that because of the Exodus 7-3 and 10-1-12 comments, but the parallel to these trumpets in Revelation to the events in the Exodus and the plagues leads me to conclude some will repent. Some will see God's judgments. I believe they've been unfolding for 2,000 years and realize that they're in the crosshairs. And if they don't repent, they too will perish like Pharaoh and his army. But most won't. Most will stiffen their neck and harden their heart and continue in their rebellion against God until His final judgment pulverizes them. Leading to the seven bowls, 
chapter 5, 15, verse 5, all the way to 16, 21. The seven bowls, I believe, are a deeper explanation of those seven trumpets. The trumpets focused primarily on God's judgments of nature. The bowls focused primarily on God's judgments of the wicked, of people. G.K. Bill, once again, the trumpet visions may be compared to incomplete snapshots and the bowls more detailed pictures. Only two trumpets explicitly identified those punished as unbelievers. But six of the bowls clearly identify unbelievers as the ones who are afflicted. This implies, Bill concludes, that even the unspecified trumpets are predominantly plagues directed against unbelieving humanity. If you want to summarize what I think the trumpets and bowls are intended to teach us, I would put it in this phrase. God will show no tolerance for anyone who does not believe the gospel. That's the summary. God will show no tolerance for anyone that does not do homage to the Lamb. Salute the Lamb. Hail Christ. That's the meat of the sermon. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, preceded by Jesus' message to the seven churches. What follows, chapter 17, 18, and 19, is final judgment on Babylon and the beast. Look at chapter 19, verse 7. This explains the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are true words of God. In the passage that follows, we get the most expanded description of Christ's defeat and judgment of ungodly forces at the culmination, the end of history. The righteous are with Christ. The marriage supper is unfolding. Revelation 19.11 I saw heaven open to behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 16, and on his robe, on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come assemble yourself for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 20, and the beast was seized. With him the false prophet, 
who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Think chapter 17 to 19 are a big interpretive review of the sixth and seventh bowls when God judges the nations through His Christ. His wrath is executed. Vengeance is accomplished. I mentioned that this section, all the way up to chapter 20, closes with a look at the millennium. I believe this is the time in which we now live, the church age. Dr. Bill put it this way, the time when God limits Satan's deceptive powers and Christians who have died are vindicated during their reign in heaven. Chapter 20, verses 1-6 to is the only place in the Bible that explicitly mentions that millennium. Millennium, thousand, thousand year reign of Christ. There's three main views about that time. What's going to happen during those thousand years? When is it? Before I try to summarize them, Let your eyes fall on verse 4 of chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image. And did not receive the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests to God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. That's the passage that refers to the millennium. You've likely heard the titles of the three main views about that. Again, because I either wasn't listening or no preacher told me what other people thought, I'm going to do my best to very succinctly, one or two sentences, summarize each view. You know them pre mill, post mill, ah mill, premillennial, post millennial, ah millennial. Dr. Easley said about premillennialism. These verses point to, they believe, a literal long period of time after Christ's coming during which He will rule on earth. After which time, His rule will be temporarily usurped before the final appearing of the new creation. Before the millennium, Christ will come and reign for a thousand years according to the premillennial view. Premillennialism has a lot of variations. Historic premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism. I got a lot of notes about that that I'm going to pass now. Postmillennialists. Barry Cooper, writing at Ligonier, summarized that view this way Postmillennialism is an optimistic view of the future and how the world will end. Postmillennialists believe that the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, is actually going to be fulfilled, that the nations will overwhelmingly turn to Jesus. Before he returns. Those are really the only two views. Because amillennialism is a derivation, some would say, of postmillennialism. It's either before or after the millennium that Christ returns. 
well, well-known, I regard as true Christian and very godly people who've held the first view, uh, premillennialism, popularized not uh, more than two centuries ago by C.I. Schofield, Dallas Theological Seminary, John Wolver, Charles Ryrie, post-millennialist who in church history I hold in the highest regard, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, the amillennial view. Barry Cooper again at Ligonier said, the amillennialists believe that the binding of Satan took place during Jesus' earthly ministry. Satan was restrained by God while the good news of Christ's salvation was announced. And that restraining order is still in force today as the gospel continues to go out. So the thousand years in Revelation simply means that Christ, pardon, the extended period of time during which the gospel is preached to the world, amillennialists believe that while Christians will have a salt and light influence on the culture in which they live, they will not ultimately redeem or transform the culture. Instead, as the end draws near, evil will continue to grow, leading to a great tribulation for all believers and the appearance of the Antichrist, a figure who will persecute God's people. Then Christ will return to resurrect the dead, judge all humanity, inaugurate a new heaven and new earth in which his people will no longer be subject to suffering pain, only joy, a kingdom which will be eternal. Well-known leaders in church history who've held that view. Augustine, John Calvin, Gerhardus Voss, Louis Burkhoff. Again, every person I've named so far I think are true Christian, godly people, love Jesus, want to understand the Bible. I'm in the last view. There are those in the room who are in each of the other two views. I'm sympathetic to various arguments from every view. So I'll close my summary with this. Dr. Tom Schreiner has written commentaries on a number of New Testament books and a New Testament theology of the entire New Testament who has changed his view with just about every commentary he's written said, if you hold a gun to my head and tell me I have to deny my current eschatological view, I will do it in a heartbeat. (laughs) Dr. Easley, in his book, Bible History Survey, Survey, not his Revelation commentary, said, quote, No Bible student can be absolutely certain about the right interpretation of this. The future will make it clear. That's healthy. That's coming from a mature, scholarly, Bible-immersed brother. So I have three applications for us. In light of the reality that Jesus reigns and rules over all history, Many martyrs will be made. The gospel will continue to advance. And Jesus is coming again personally, bodily, visibly to reign forever. I have three applications. Prepare right now to meet your God. Life is short. Eternity is long. Hell is hot. Jesus is worthy. Prepare now to meet your God. That God has so abundantly revealed Himself in His heart to you that you are without excuse. He gave heaven's favorite to be slaughtered for your sins so that an adequate sacrifice could be made for you to have a favorable meeting with Him not only once, but to be in His family forever. Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead as proof positive that God will forever accept anybody who comes to Him through Jesus.
If you will turn from your sin and put all your hope for everlasting favor with God in the risen Jesus, He will save you forever. Prepare now for forever. But second, I said, what you do tomorrow will depend largely on what you believe about eternity. Live now in light of forever. What are you going to lay at Jesus' feet when you do finally see Him? A lot of us have afflictions and sorrows, losses, pains, grief, tears. But Paul wrote, who had all those things, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Live now in light of forever. And then finally, pray and proclaim the Gospel now like Jesus is coming again because He is. Instead of wondering what everybody else is going to think about me or worrying what other people are going to think about me or being embarrassed or ashamed or intimidated about sharing Christ with other people. If you want to be on the right side of history and have others there to enjoy Christ with you, then let's pray and proclaim the Gospel like Jesus is coming again to judge the whole world in righteousness. Guess why? Because He is. He's coming again. So I conclude where our portion of Revelation concludes. Let your eyes fall on these verses and then I'll pray for us. Revelation 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, Written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. After we pray, we'll have an opportunity to respond at the Lord's table. If you're a baptized Christian, you're trying to walk in fellowship with Jesus, meaning you know that you are not living in sin for which Jesus died, and choosing that over Him, you're saying, I don't want that. I want you, Jesus. You're a baptized Christian walking in fellowship with Jesus. And you are accountable to a church that preaches the same gospel you heard here today. And you're included to take the Lord's Supper there. Then we encourage you to partake with us. What will happen after I pray is people will make their way to the elements on either side of the room. I want to be as clear as I can because I don't think we say this as clear as we hope to. You'll cluster in a group of people. Four, six, eight, ten. You'll cluster with some people. We hope that there's a member of Grace Church in every cluster. In God's providence, please let it be, Lord. That member will say a word of prayer, of thanks for the Gospel. Then 
the whole group together will take the bread and the cup, first the bread, then the cup, representing the body and blood of Jesus, sobering us at the cost of our salvation, encouraging us in the hope that he paid for. We will see him one day. After you partake, if you'll make your way back to your seat, Pastor Brian will come and close our service. I'm going to pray. You'll be invited to do that as those who've been leading us in song sing over us. After the Lord's Supper, after the song, Pastor Brown will come close our service. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And you will take your great power and you will reign forever and ever. Not believing that will not make it go away. Ignoring the truth does not make it vanish. Instead, Lord, we pray that You would help us to live in light of that truth. Every day in light of eternity. Each day, one day closer to seeing Jesus as He is. And when we see Him, we'll be like Him. Everybody who has that hope fixed on Him purifies Himself right now even as He is pure. Make us more like Christ by putting our eyes on Him, even in the midst, like our brothers and sisters in the first century, even in the midst of persecution, suffering, loss, pain, sorrow. Let us take comfort from the book of Revelation. Blessed is He who reads and hears these words and obeys what is written in them. Give us that blessing. Let us too sing day and night in times of joy and sorrow, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in His name. Amen.